Hello, this is Chris resuming um, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 18 through chapter 2, verse 5. As I was reading, I'll start again at Thesis 21 of the Heidelberg Disputation. Luther writes that God can only be found in suffering and the cross. It is impossible for him, or sorry, it is impossible for a person not to be puffed up by his good works, unless he has first been deflated and destroyed by suffering and evil until he knows that he is worthless. I mean, yikes. Don't hold back here, Luther, huh? And that his works are not his, but God's. So the key in what he's saying here, he's referring to Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32. Luther continues and says, The power of God is visible in creation, but the grace of God can only be found in God's word and sacraments on the cross and in the supper, which to the world appear weak and foolish. And we hear that like in verse 21 of uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, as Paul says, Human wisdom cannot lead to God, who reveals himself in the message of the cross. As we continue here, let's read uh, verses 20 and 21. We hear here, Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe, Paul writes? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since, in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God, through the folly of what we preach, to save those who believe. I'll read the next verses as well. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, and folly to the Gentiles. And you see the opening in, in verse 20. He's again talking, if you consider those people groups that we referred to in our second session, right? I, Paul would say, there are those of you who say you follow Apollos, those who say you follow Peter, or sorry, Cephas. There are those of you who say they follow Paul and those who follow Christ. These people groups have divided themselves. The main issue that's going on in this chapter that he's addressing, and you can see, where is the one who is wise, right? When you hear this, uh, this question is directed toward people in particular, and it's quoted from Isaiah chapter 19, 12. You, you'll find it amazing as you go through this letter how often Paul is quoting from Isaiah. You know, and these questions are to the philosophers at the time who gained wisdom through debate, the people of this age, the the ones, the scribes are the ones who study the text. He's talking to those who follow Cephas, right? Those those Jews that were so concerned with the fulfillment of, of Old Testament ceremonial law, more so than on their fulfillment of their actual, you would say, like entire religion and culture in the Messiah. And this is all contrasted to God's timeless wisdom, right? The foolish wisdom of the world. And we get to verse 21. We hear, Human wisdom cannot lead to God, who reveals himself through the message of the cross. Luther, again, has a great quote here. The forgiveness of sins cannot come to us in any other way than through the word. How would we know otherwise? Let's go to verse 22 in particular. This is a, a big theme and a major verse here. For indeed the Jews ask for signs, and the Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. Sometimes it says Greeks there, sometimes it says Gentiles. To, to enlighten us to this a bit, let's kind of start with the Greeks here. 
the word Greek itself, like the word philosophy in the Greek means love of wisdom. So the Greeks are like, we talked about it before with um, Apollos, right? They, they really love to pon not just pontificate, but to take the time and have an argument for argument's sake without looking for a resolution, really, but just kind of display of a quick tongue to be wisdom and knowledge. And God leading people to him by the most unimpressive means, the silliness of preaching, as Paul calls it. It's because Paul already emphasized to us, and will emphasize again, keep it simple, right? Keep it clear, just that, and we'll talk about it in a few more sessions, but there's two styles of teaching within, uh, not just Greek, but at the time, we still use them a lot today. Keep the proclamation of what Christ did for us very clear. But the Greeks are seeking after wisdom. They want more. They want to pontificate. They want to have um, very deep, deep, uh, what we call conversa conversations, but like, but not not like the good rich kind. We're talking like a clever mind and, and cunning tongue. If you've ever been in a discussion with someone and you could see them looking at you and not listening, as if I, I call it like they're loading their gun for the argument. They they stop listening to what you're saying and they can't wait to fire back at you. That's the kind of conversation they're having. A very bad debate. To look at the Greeks again for their seeking wisdom, here, here are a couple stories. The first one is from Plutarch. He's a great historian and philosopher, and he declared it um, that it was an insult to God to involve himself with human affairs. A God of necessity was utterly detached. The very idea of God becoming a man incarnate was revolting to a Greek mind at that time. There are groups of people here that are called sophists in within Greek culture, and that means wise man, and it kind of meant more, not wisdom, but someone with a clever mind and a cunning tongue, a man who would spend hours of endless discussions on, like, splitting trifles, a man who had no real interest in solutions, but who simply glorified in the stimulus of what we call a, a mental hike. And you see that, and I say, do you know anyone like that? We kind of see it a lot today. How much do people really know about what they're saying and how are they, quote-unquote, followed? You see it in, you know, I would say not just social media. You see it just on, on YouTube and vloggers, people that, that are declaring their own opinion, which is fine, but it's for the sake of opinion, not really to make anything better or the sake for hearing someone's own voice being heard rather than resolving an issue, an argument for argument's sake rather than for building up one another. In the first century, there was a writer named Dio Chrysantum, and he describes these kind of Greek men. They croak like frogs in a marsh. They are the most wretched of men because, though ignorant, they think themselves wise. They are like peacocks, showing off their reputation and the number of their pupils as peacocks do their tails. Oh yeah, I can hear that. Plutarch here again, he'll say, they made their voices sweet with musical cadences and modulations of tone and echoed, renaissance, uh, and echoed resonances. They thought not of what they were saying, but how they were saying it. Their tongue might be poisonous as long as it, enveloped, as long as it was enveloped with honeyed words. Again, the Greeks were really intoxicated at this time with fine words. It doesn't sound all too unfamiliar today. 
and to them a Greek preacher with a blunt message seemed crude and uncultured, someone to be laughed at and ridiculed rather than to be listened to and respected. Again, there's always kind of that irony of when uh, you'll hear kind of often, hey, when you guys preach, uh, you know, I feel like you're saying the same message every week. And I, when I hear that, you can't help but chuckle sometimes and you say, yeah, I, I know. And I, it's not saying that we can't have, you know, relevant practical application. That's very true and how that message comes across and how it's applied in different areas. But to hear that we hear the same message every week of Christ living, dying, and being resurrected for us so we could be with him in paradise, that's a good thing to hear every week. For some people, it's the first time. For some people, it's the first time they've heard it in a long time. For some, it's the first time they've heard it that way and how personal it can be for you. So I encourage you, when you hear that, a little repetition can be a good thing. But for some who are, again, see the message of the cross as foolishness, it may seem crude, uncultured, and maybe blunt, something that could be laughed at and ridiculed rather than listened to and respected. And the second part of this verse, the, the Jews who sought for signs. This was a huge time for false prophets and false messiahs. They were rampant after the time of Christ and even before Christ, but particularly after him. Two major ones. Um, in 45 AD, uh, Theodos had emerged and persuaded thousands of people to abandon their homes and to follow him out to the Jordan and promised at his command the Jordan would split and get them across without getting their feet wet. Well, do you think that happened? <laughs> no, not quite. And in 54 AD, a man arrived from Egypt claiming to be a prophet. He persuaded 30,000 people to follow him to the Mount of Olives, saying that at his word, the walls of Jerusalem would come down. What do you think happened there? It didn't happen. 30,000 people, not just looking foolish, but oftentimes these people would be arrested and tried. So see, Paul writes, we preach Christ crucified. The Jews expected a Messiah, but they didn't expect one that was going to be crucified. right? The Messiah that they wanted was going to be the Messiah that was doing these big things. You know, we follow a pillar of fire by night. Or the one who's going to cast ten plagues from Exodus. Or the one who's going to bring us a mighty man with the jaw of a donkey that's going to uh, win us wars. They have these huge pictures of these massive signs to be done by a Messiah. Yet, how does that contrast with how Jesus came for us? He came humbly. He came gently. He came with a heart for service. And yes, he did miraculous signs. A lot of them, though, were very personal. They wanted someone who would conquer again be that pillar of fire rather than one that would come and heal, one that would come and show love, one that would come and be with people one-on-one. -on -one. Jesus came and he did indeed conquer, just not the way that they thought that he would. He conquered with humility and with his life rather than with an iron fist. So when they say Jews look for signs, they wanted those big signs. And the Greeks, when they were looking for wisdom, they wanted that, that really just kind of clever tongue, out of reach God type of wisdom. But Paul says we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block for the Greeks. And I love this word. Um, in the Greek, this word stumbling block is scandalon, where we get the word scandal. And uh, 
in the English, you know, you kind of think of scandal. It means like give offense or rejection, but it also means um, gives offense and causes revulsion. Something that's disgusting. A scandal is something that's offensive and disgusting. So when the preaching of Christ aroused disapproval and opposition, even violence, they saw it as offensive and disgusting. Consider the crucified Messiah. Why would that be a stumbling block for a Jew? Well, if you consider for a moment, if they wanted a God that was a pillar of fire by night, that they kept in a golden Ark of the Covenant, that they kept separate behind a curtain that was uh, 60 feet high, 30 feet wide, and 4 inches thick, that the being in the very presence of there, when you weren't supposed to, touching it in any fashion that uh, you weren't allowed to, you would die instantly. That's the kind of God they wanted. But you're going to tell me that the, the God that we have, the one that has come to save us, our true Messiah, is going to hang on a cross and bleed and die and be beaten up by people? Excuse me? I find that to be offensive and disgusting. It really opens your mind to, to the time of a, uh, of a Jew at that time, but also like a Pharisee and and many of the other temple leaders at the time, the Sadducees, and, and you think that, wow, when they saw Christ on the cross and the things that he was doing, it was a lot deeper than, uh, hey, you know, don't do that because we want to do things our way. In, in part of their mind, if that was their God and they saw what was happening to him, it's offensive and disgusting. And I mentioned this before, folly for the Gentiles or, or folly for the the Greeks, again, consider that Roman society, a crucified God, seems absurd. Why would you worship a dead man when you could be worshiping someone who is conquering an entire area, someone that's like Caesar? And we get to verse 24. Verse 24, but to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. There's kind of a third group there that's made of both Jews and Greeks. And Paul's saying, if you're a Jew looking for signs and wonders as a display of God's power, you will find that power displayed in Christ crucified. If you are a Greek on a quest for wisdom, you will find God's wisdom perfectly revealed in the word of the cross. So we continue here again, verse 25 now. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man, and the weakness of God is is stronger than man. And again, this is kind of a paraphrase of Isaiah 55, verse 8, where Isaiah writes, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. And you read that, you consider God outsmarted and overpowered all human wisdom and power through the cross. You know, he didn't ask for advice. God didn't say, what should I do? Can you consult me on how I should save and redeem all of humanity? And honestly, if he did, we would have gotten it wrong. If he would have asked me for advice, it wouldn't have been right. And we'd still certainly be doomed. I would still certainly be doomed. Then we hear 26 through 31 kind of ends this entire section. It all kind of goes together. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were noble of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish 
in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And you contrast these, this section over here with the sophists of that day. There are, there are direct quotes about uh, Christians from that time. Again, 178 AD, a philosopher named Celsus, he wrote, Let no cultured person draw near. So he's addressing, he's talking about Christianity here. Let no cultured person draw near, none wise, none sensible. For all that kind of thing we count evil. But if any man is ignorant, if any man in, is wanting in sense and culture, if any is a fool, let him come boldly. You know, Paul really glories in the fact that, for the most part, the church was composed of the most straightforward and humblest of people. Because again, Celsus, again, he continues to write here of Christians, we see them in their own home, Wool dressers, cobblers, and fullers, that means people who clean clothes, the most uneducated and vulgar persons. What you get from that, and again, this is just kind of deriving from that verse, Christianity at this time, and to even today, um, but especially then, was made of people who were things, considered slaves, or slaves of children, or even children, or uh, those of lower class. They were kind of considered property. Christianity made these people who were things into real men and women. It gave respect to those who had no respect. It gave eternal life to those who had no life, to those who were worthless in the eyes of the world and in the eyes of God. They were worth the death of his one and only son. We hear that in verse 27. uses the weak to shame the wise so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. If you consider to boast in something, that goes back to that theology of glory. If you have something to boast in, you most likely feel like you've done something or earned it. But because of Christ Jesus, who became wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, the sin of the Corinthians is that each one of them was kind of boasting in their own wisdom, and they would attach it to somebody. So consider Paul, or Apollos, or Cephas, even Christ, right? That was kind of the elitist approach that they were taking that if you if you don't follow Christ the way we follow Christ then you can't be a real Christian at all as Paul wraps up right and this is chapter 2 verses 1 through 5 he says when I came to you brothers did not when I came to you brothers did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified and I was with you in the weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith may not rest in wisdom of men, but in the power of God. 
you know, Paul really refused this time to give in and rely on like rhetorical techniques or worldly strategies for making an impression. His goal was not to hide the offensiveness and the weakness that people saw the cross because to hide that would admit it as weakness. When you display it, it's to know the power of Jesus. It's a very simple, very focused message. The good news is not conveyed through eloquence, but through humble messengers testifying about the cross. And we look there for God's power and rest in his wisdom. And we'll see how that kind of continues through into the rest of chapter 2 and into chapter 3. May God bless your day. If you have any questions or comments, email them to podcast at gracepocatello.org. And make sure to subscribe to our channel to stay up to date on sermons and classes at Grace Lutheran Church in Pocatello, Idaho. This podcast is designed so that you can take grace with you anywhere you go. Thank you.